I'm going to invite you to look at the back of your worship guide. In a moment, we're going to turn to Scripture. We're actually going to go through probably at least 10 different passages of Scripture. One we're going to camp out in for quite a little while. But I want you to turn to the back of the worship guide because we are, this summer, going through our confessional statement, or at least the statement that we are proposing to adopt. The Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith is a statement of faith that has been increasingly adopt by, adopted by hundreds and hundreds of churches across the world. Uh, I think it's, it's a cross-denominational statement in many ways. The leadership behind the writing of this confessional statement is not within one denomination. People from different backgrounds with some different views. But I believe that increasingly this statement, it's robust, it's thorough, it's, it's glorious and soaring in a lot of different ways, I think is increasingly going to become a dominant and really well-known and stable Protestant profession of faith. We are asking the church to consider the statement and we want to this summer walk through it. So we are calling this series Truth Matters. It really is a, a slow look at what we believe, who we are, the things that make us a church. And I really want to say that very clearly. The thing that makes us a church is what we are bound by in truth. That's what make us, makes us a church. We can be a club. We can be a network for business. We can be a place of care and concern for those with needs. We can have friendships, all of those kind of things. The thing that makes us a church is what we unite around in our belief. The, thing, the way that we see the world. Who is God and what has he done and what does he expect from us? The statement of faith is not a minor thing and we don't want to just have it on the back burner somewhere. We don't want years from now you to say, what, what do we believe as a church? And we say like, uh, dig through the dust in that filing cabinet over there. It's somewhere. Uh, this, is, this is meant to be what we live out of. This should explain what we do. And so last week, we looked at God existing, who he is. A good place to start a theology, who is God. In fact, that's what the word means, the study of God, the things of God. We started with God, and now we've moved on to Article 2, which I'm going to read in just a moment. And I want you to think about the fact that this statement is not... Last week we talked about God, and now this week we're going to talk about a book. More or less, it's about the Bible. That's where we're going to focus. But it's not as though last week we talked about God, and now we're just talking about human things like a book. The fact that God revealed himself. We're going to title this week's sermon, Truth Matters, God Revealing. The fact that God reveals himself, he discloses himself, is part of who he is. It's part of the nature of who God is. We are still talking about God when we say God reveals. So I want to go ahead and read. It's on the back of the worship guide there. This is article number two. It's called Revelation. We'll read through it together. You can just follow along. It says this, God has graciously disclosed his existence and power in the created order and has supremely revealed himself to fallen human beings in the person of his Son, the Incarnate Word. Moreover, this God is a speaking God, who by his Spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, which are both record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority 
in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we affirm that, enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. This topic is not a small one. It's a big one with a lot of nuance and potential difficulties. So I want to just take a moment and just, and just pray. I want to pray. I know we've prayed a bunch today already. I want to ask God to help us. Father, thank you for being a speaking God. You've not remained hidden and that should be a wonder to us. But we need your help. Once again, here we have come and we have dim eyes and often distracted in hard hearts. So help us. We desire to be faithful and true. We want to see you as you really are. So God, help us. Holy Spirit, come. You are the comforter and the one who brings light. You stir our souls. You take from Jesus and give to us. Bring to our remembrance all things. Father, give us light. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make the point, I don't want to rush past it, because I think this is significant and important. One of the things that happens the moment you begin talking about the Bible, for Christians anyway, is we begin to start talking about the minutia. Which books, an apocrypha, and which version? And I'm King James only, or I'm not? Or what about this, and how did this work? Are you saying it's in the original writings, it's without error? I think we should argue about the word inerrancy. We talk about, well, what about salvation and how does it work intricately? We get very far down the road of theology before we, I think we just need to pause, before we get there, we need to remember what we're saying in this article. Here's what we're saying. God exists. He exists. He is more beautiful and glorious and powerful than we could think or imagine. He spoke the universe into existence. He will judge with perfect righteousness But get this, that God speaks. He desires to be known and he can communicate to us. Not only can he communicate, but he has. We cannot rush past this. Do you know how ridiculous this is? Do you know how stupefying this ought to be to us? God speaks. We are so comfortable with the idea of God and creation and God and scripture and the Bible, we're so comfortable with saying, like, saying things like, well, you know, it's just the word of God. The word of God is powerful. That we forget what an astounding belief this really is. The world does not forget. Those looking in on us as a church, this is, an, this is a crazy statement of faith. Okay, so God exists, some kind of otherness, right? You could get me to the point of spirituality to say, yeah, there might be something out there. It seems like maybe there's more to this world. Oh, wait, 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 but hold up. You think he talks to us? You think he can be, he's made known? You think that we have, we have direction from him? This statement is astounding, and we run way past it far too quickly. A couple of different times in this article, 
the word graciously shows up. Graciously. Do you know how gracious and kind a thing it is that God has spoken? That God wants to be known, that he invites us to himself? And we ought to see it for the grace that it is. God had every single right to give us eternal silent treatment. He really did. Do you know that to be ignored is oftentimes more hurtful and difficult than being hated? You can be actively opposed but still have some significance at least. At least I'm significant enough to be noticed and opposed. God could have spun the universe off into existence and then just been completely silent. He would have every single right to not speak. And yet there's something in God. There's something about his nature, who he is. He wants to be known. He delights in us as his creation. And every single bit of his disclosure to us, every bit of his revelation, is an invitation again and again and again. He wants to be known. He speaks. This was not lost on the people of Israel. You know that? It's lost on us a little bit, or if it's, if it's not lost, it's at least sort of on the back burner. The fact that God is not a silent God should astound us. It's not a minor aspect of, his, of who he is. It's as, as astonishing as Mr. Ed in some ways. Hey, describe Mr. Ed to me. Ah, he's a horse. He's brown. Had a TV show. Uh, it was pretty popular. It was cool. Get through the whole description, and what does someone say? Uh, you forgot that he talks, right? Some of you are like, Mr. Who? It's like American Pharaoh, except he speaks. That's what it's like. He talks, and this is not a minor part of his nature. And Israel knew this. You know what the glory of Israel was? The glory of the people of God was the fact that their God spoke. He revealed himself to them. Listen to just, this is one of the places. You can find this all through the Psalms in a million different places. You can find it in Kings. You can find it in Kings when they're having these battles between, between lowercase gods and the God of Israel. This is one place, Habakkuk chapter 2. You might say Habakkuk or Habakkuk. No one knows what it's supposed to be pronounced. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And I think it'll be on the screen. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you have full permission to look in the table of contents. Go ahead. You got it. I would have to do the same thing. Habakkuk chapter 2. Listen to the glory that they understood in a speaking God. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing. Note the direction of the language. The God is the one being spoken to. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. These are gods that you have to speak to. That's what they're saying. But, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keeps silence before him. We remain silent before God because he speaks. We don't have to speak to him and chide him and goad him into doing something. Come on, stone idol, arise. You get the impression here he's almost teasing them like a good gardener would speak to their plant, right? This kind of 
worship of gods is a one-way relationship. This is Tom Hanks and Wilson. That's what it is. He speaks to it, gives him some comfort, but that ball is not a disclosing, revealing, speaking thing. The glory of the people of Israel was that our God, the God of the universe, he wants to be known and he speaks. The fact that he has breath, we can be silent before him because it's his voice that comes and washes us. It's his voice that calls us to himself. This is not a minor thing. People of God understood, wow, God speaks. This is all tied up in the nature of who he is. We cannot have Article 2 of a confession without understanding the nature of God. So I want to walk through and say, how has he spoken? First point is maybe just this, God speaks. You should put a little asterisk right there and just say like, wowzers, right? Because that should be like important. It's like a star, whatever it needs to remember it. The second question is like, how does he speak? So if he speaks, how does he speak? Because many people have claimed to say, like, I heard from God, or maybe it was the wind, or it was this, or it was that. Historically, and in Scripture, there's a few different ways that God speaks. This is a, a few of them. One, we know, and Scripture tells us this very clearly, the first way that God's desire to be known comes out and shows itself is in creation. Creation itself is what people have called general revelation. It's general Because it speaks generally about God and it's available to all who have lived in this universe. There is something about nature itself that shows us who God is. Whenever anybody goes on a really, really long tangent about space, right? You watch one of these videos. You guys seen them on the internet where they're like, look at this thing. And then you can just scroll endlessly. You've seen this? It starts out and it's like, here's your room and your posters and your stuff. And then it starts to zoom out. And then it zooms out to earth and it zooms out to the sun. You've seen these things? And it goes on forever. And people say like, we just can't find the end of the universe. It's expanding forever. I say to them, that's for a very good reason. Because it is disclosing and revealing God and God is inexhaustible. There will be no end because God himself has no end. The universe is declaring. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring, they're telling the works of God. There's something in creation that when you look at it, you should be able to say to yourself, someone has done great things. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't Mother Earth. It wasn't an abstract concept like time and chance. Something in creation is speaking. That means that every leaf that falls is murmuring and muttering and whispering God. The ocean and all of its power and chaos and depth. The canyons and mountains. Go watch planet Earth. We're like three episodes in with my kids. Go watch this and realize that God has created this for a purpose. It discloses who he is. The Bible tells us this very, very clearly. General Revelation, the concept is in Romans chapter 1. Again, verse 18. This is Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's a knowledge of God that is suppressed. That's what unrighteousness looks like, suppressed. It says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation, who God is in what he has made, is sufficient enough to leave us with no excuse. The testimony of Scripture, when someone doubts and looks around and says, this is random chance and this came out of nothingness, the answer to that from Scripture is that deep down somewhere there is a suppression, there is a pushing down, a holding back of what is supposed to be awe-inspiring, supposed to bring about in you this idea that God is eternal and he is divine and he has created an amazing place. Where something exists with design, there is a creator. That is the most natural, common sense thing in the world. And yet, there's something in us that wants to suppress it. General revelation is in all of creation. Not sufficient, though, to save. It's why there's a second category. How does God speak? Not only in creation, but in special revelation. That's what people have called it. Special revelation. He speaks through prophets, through written word, through his law, his commandments, statutes. The Bible uses a ton of different words for these things. Basically, through scripture. And so, general revelation is enough to know that God is there and to hold us accountable without excuse. But scripture is given so that we might know him and be Saved. That's the point. Special revelation is the second way that God speaks. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is our camp out, camp out section. We're going to camp here for a little while. This is toward the end of Paul's life and his imprisonment in Rome, which we just saw at the end of Acts a couple weeks ago. Near the end of his imprisonment, he's writing to Timothy, who he has been a mentor to, a kind of father figure to. He's a young man. And he's writing to him a sort of last will and testament. He believes that he is about to die. He says he's being poured out as a drink offering in the very next chapter. And he's leaving him the importance of special revelation of Scripture. This is what he says beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy apparently had some amazing heritage. He had some great parents. Some of you have this. Some of you have steadfast, faithful, diligent parents who you think back and you can just think to them reading the Bible to you, helping you memorize, praying for you. Even now, maybe today, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. What a heritage that is. The first chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul says, you have, amazing, you have an amazing heritage, Timothy. Your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice spoke the word of God to you. This ought to remind us that God's chief way of passing on the faith, the chief way, the most constant and normative way is through the family. Parents, you have an unbelievable stewardship, a great responsibility. What a great gift to pass on the faith to children. 
If you do not have kids yet, you can participate in the same thing by serving kids and helping them memorize scripture. This is a heritage that pays back dividends for a lifetime. That's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy is a growing influential leader in the church. He is a stalwart leader. And Paul is pointing back to his grandma as part of the reason why. Timothy, you know why you're awesome? Remember, your grandma, she's the best. She spoke the word of God to you. And I think this tells us a few different things. One is we ought to take great pains to pass scripture on to our children. I love the consistency and steadfastness of my wife in this regard. She is constantly saying, Lance, what scripture should we have the kids memorize? They're going to bed at night. We put them to, put them to bed. We usually read this like action Bible thing or, a, or one that they have is like their little reader one. And then Sarah will just go through a list of scripture that she just wants them to, to be saturated in and just to read it. Just reading it to them as they're, as they're going to bed. And you know the other thing that's amazing? So one, we have a stewardship to pass it on to our children. I think that's what 2 Timothy 3 is telling us. And here's the other reason why. Children are sponges. They're unbelievably smart. Do you know that? Children can learn in an order of multitudes better than adults can learn. Your capacity right now, as a, and I don't mean this in a mean way, as an old dog to learn new tricks, what's the saying? It's almost like someone should make a saying out of this, right? Old dogs, it's tough for old dogs to learn new tricks, right? This is the way that we're wired. Children embrace and have to walk and encounter a universe where everything is new. Every single day, I have multiple conversations with my kids. I have to explain things that I take for granted, and I forget, oh yeah, that needs to be learned. You have to teach them everything. And God has wired them specifically to memorize. I want children, I want people to learn and grow in education so that they can have logic and they, sh- they, can, they can actually speak through and think. There's a push in education to say, let's not make robots. We want them to be able to think. Yes, that's all fine and good, except for the fact that why don't we start them when they're sponges by memorizing as much as they possibly can? That should be the idea. Memorize, 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 memorize. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. Children remember everything and they repeat everything, word for word. They will remember a promise you made to them five and a half months ago and they will bring it back up to you. It ought to make us careful about what we promise and fulfill or don't fulfill to kids. It matters to them. The other thing is that they will repeat and if you haven't been a parent and been embarrassed, you will be. I remember one time specifically, my little sister, she's three and a half years younger than me, of an older brother who's a couple years older, and then a little sister. And uh, Dane is actually the only one who's left in North Dakota. She's the director of a facility for assisted living, Alzheimer's, and dementia care. And uh, the rest of my immediate family has all gone to Phoenix, Arizona. They, they got out of Dodge. Uh, she's, uh, she's remained there. Uh, it was actually a, a great and interesting weekend for my family. My brother actually won a Father of the Year award from a TV station in Arizona. And so on Friday morning, they came to his door and surprised him with like one of those big novelty checks, <laughs> like, like, like for a real thing. He was live on Good Morning Arizona. And uh, that was an, a very intriguing uh, moment for him. And I laughed like a brother should laugh at him because he was shocked. But my little sister, when she was uh, really young, uh, I remember an instance where she remembered and repeated things verbatim. And it wasn't a, a good moment. My next door neighbor, who happened to be my cousin, 
just follow along. You'll get it. It's North Dakota. So they're my cousins. And uh, he was seven years older than me. I wanted to be this guy. He was an amazing athlete, stud, just a great guy. He started dating this girl. And so, wow, 14, 15-year-old dating, right? We did what neighbors and family members do. We peeked through the windows as they walked around, right? Like, who, are, who is that right out there? And so we were looking through the picture window in the front. And they're going for a little walk together, cute little couple. And at the time, this is early 90s, like way early 90s, like the Fab Five in Michigan, right? This basketball team is going black socks and big baggy shorts. This is like the newest thing. They were the coolest style. And so this girl is wearing a long baggy, past her knees, pair of New York Knicks basketball shorts. It's the Knicks, bright orange and blue. Just crazy color, right? So of course my mom, kind of under her breath, says, oh, those shorts are so ugly. I don't know, is that, is that in style now? I would never wear that, right? So my brother and I were old enough to like kind of laugh and be like, yeah, it is in style, mom. Like, get with it. You're so not hip. And, uh, and then we were like, let's listen to crisscross again. But anyway, so the, the, el- the shorts are big, right? And they're, they're long and they're down there. And then we finally get to the moment where like my cousin's going to introduce this girl to the family. She's going to introduce the girl to the family. So it's later, we have this moment of meeting, we go up, and guess what the first thing that is said? With the exact breath and intonation and emotion and everything, my little sister says, my mom said, oh, your shorts are so ugly, and I would never wear those. (laughs) Why do you wear those? Word for word, this child, my little sister, picked up every word, every thought, every feeling, and then repeated it. It's the way kids are. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, who you are now is not a mistake. You didn't just end up there. You were trained from childhood and you remembered. And what you learned when you were a kid had a very specific function. What did he learn and what was the function? Verse 15, he was acquainted with the sacred writings. This is a word in Greek, uh, grammata basically, one of many in Greek. There's logos, Rhema and graphe, there's a bunch of words that the Bible uses for scripture. This is one of them. He says, you were acquainted with scripture and note the unbelievable power that he gives to scripture. What is scripture able to do? It's, to, it's able to make you wise for salvation. Salvation came to Timothy through his study and his acquaintance with scripture. That's what Paul says. He couldn't make it more clear. This phrase, which is able to make you wise, the word dunamos, power. Scripture is power to make you wise for salvation. That's what it says. Scripture is power to make you wise for salvation. Why do we spend so much time in worship service on the Bible? Why do we say go to Bible studies? Why do we encourage you in your, in your own life? Don't just listen to me, but search the scriptures yourself. Why? Because God has given a means to make himself known and to save you, and it's in searching the scripture. That's what he says to Timothy. These sacred writings were able, powerful to make you wise for salvation. That salvation is not a random, generic, vague salvation. It is in Christ Jesus. This brings us another specific point, not just that God speaks, not just how he speaks in scripture and in general revelation, but the content of his speak, his speak, his speaky. God knows speaky. He, uh, he spoke Jesus Christ. That's what he spoke. The Son is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word 
was with God and the word was God. He always speaks Jesus. That's what God is doing. The content of the Bible is Jesus Christ. We need to really wrestle with that. The content of the Bible is Jesus. It's not a whole bunch of books with a bunch of different random moral codes. It's not, it's not a, a historical narrative that just has some details that are unnecessary. It is one story about one person, Jesus Christ, from beginning to end. And we need to make sure that people know that. When people go through and they say like, oh, well, you know, the Bible says this or it says that. You know, there's this story about a guy who commits adultery. Oh, that, that's really good. For, that's really Christian-like. The point is not that every sentence is unveiling a moral code. The point is that every sentence is either anticipating or showing us the incarnation of or preaching or explaining or expecting a coming Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And he said that himself. This is John chapter 5. John chapter 5. He's in a debate with the Jewish leaders. Cliff Notes version of the Bible, that's almost half the New Testament. He's in a debate with the Jewish leaders of the day. This is what he says to them. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says the Old Testament. You want to know what it's about? This is the biggest Cliff Notes ever. Jesus. That's what it's about. The Old Testament is about me. He says the same thing a few verses later in John chapter 5, 46. In John 5, 46, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. And I love this phrase, for he wrote of me. Now, have you ever done a search in the first five books of the Bible and looked for the word Jesus? It's not there. And yet Jesus looks back and he says, everything that Moses wrote, all the way back there, he's writing about me. This story is about Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say the story is about me. He warns them that scripture being about him, they need to believe. He says in verse 47 of John 5, right after that, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus does a couple things. One, he says that all the Old Testament is about me. The story of the Bible is a story of Jesus. And then... He puts his words on par with those writings. In fact, he says, if you're going to reject scripture, then why even listen to me? Do you see the place that Jesus gives the word of God in his own life? One of the reasons that we value and revere and teach and learn and study in the Bible is because Jesus valued it. He constantly referred to it. He went and read it. He was a student of scripture. So, God speaks How does he speak? In all creation and in special revelation, what does he speak? He speaks Jesus. He speaks the word of God so that we can meet Jesus and be saved. That's what the Bible says. We could also ask the question then, okay, if he speaks in scripture and he speaks Jesus, what is scripture? How do we know what is scripture and what is not? Now, there are a lot of technical aspects to this. Like, you could read whole books on the historical record of how the canon came to be. And if you're someone who says, this is kind of a struggle for me, I'm not really sure how this works, I'd encourage you to go look it up. There are great books written on the establishment, the development of the understanding of the canon of Scripture. We need to ask the question, what is Scripture? Is the Gospel Coalition Confession of State, Statement of Faith, uh, Scripture? Is the Westminster Confession... Is the shack, sorry, I just had to go, is, uh, is like, what is scripture, right? Like, what, what have we read, what have we read, and then we can say to ourselves, like, this has the authority of the word of God. 
And I've already made a point to you that the Bible uses a bunch of different words for these things. I want to spend a little bit of time just to say, of course, the Old Testament. The law, the Psalms, the prophets. Jesus says in Luke 24, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, they speak, to, speak of me. They are authoritative. They are scripture. All throughout the New Testament, both Jesus himself and the apostles quote the Old Testament with introductions like, God said through the Holy Spirit, X. Like, the word of God came to Israel saying, X. Like, the scripture has said. That's the way that the Old Testament is always introduced in the New Testament. The Old Testament, we're pretty clear, that is considered to be scripture. I think in 2 Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, he was thinking most likely about the Old Testament. That's not controversial probably for a lot of people. What I want to do is take a few moments and say, how do we know the New Testament is supposed to be considered Scripture? How do we receive it as the Word of God, as authoritative, as without error, as sufficient in knowledge for everything that it speaks to? That little phrase in the confessional statement is important. Some people wonder if the Bible should say everything there is to know about everything in the world. No. It does not say what to do if you have inflation in the third quarter of a of like a European bloc nation, right? It, doesn't, it just doesn't speak to this. It, it can't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell you if that tweet was a bad idea last night. It was. You should stop that. It doesn't tell us those things, right? It doesn't say these things outright. But everything that it does speak to, we affirm that what God attempted to communicate, he has done so perfectly. And we want to know, so how do we receive the New Testament? How do we receive the New Testament? Well, here's a few reasons to receive the New Testament as Scripture. One, the way that it's written, it itself proposes that it is simply completing the Old Testament story. It is not introducing something new. One of the reasons that they refer back to the Old Testament so much much is because they are simply completing the story of what God has been doing. They don't say God wrote a story, look at that back then. They write saying God is writing the same story he started back then, now. Paul took great pains to say that his teaching and his writing was in line with the fathers of the faith. So, the New Testament completes the Old Testament story. So much so that at one point, they're quoted together as though it was one thing. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, starting verse 17. He says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then verse 18, I want you to note this. For the scripture says, so there's a statement. He makes an authoritative statement in verse 17. Then he's going to back it up. For the scripture says, so this is the heading, scripture says, two quotes, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The first quote is not controversial. It's most likely a direct quote of Deuteronomy. It's an Old Testament passage. The New Testament does this all the time. The scripture says, insert Deuteronomy, fine, everything's fine. The interesting part comes after the word, and the laborer deserves his wages, This is not a quote of an Old Testament passage. In fact, it's likely a quotation of Luke. Luke, who wrote Acts and the Gospel. And Paul seems to be acquainted with Luke's writings. He knows the parables. He knows the story. And right under one heading, he says, The Scripture says Deuteronomy and Paul's work. One category. He doesn't give nuance. He doesn't give a a disclaimer. He views... The New Testament, 
as continuing the story. All right, the Deuteronomy and Luke's writing. Hey, this is just Brother Luke, right? This is like the physician. This is our friend. At one point in, at, the end of his, uh, at the end of 2 Timothy, he says, Luke alone is with me in Rome. And then he equates, Scripture says. So one of the reasons we believe the New Testament is to be received as the Word of God is that it completes the Old Testament story. They are put on par, even in the New Testament. Another reason that we believe it's so is because they were delivered so authoritatively. So authoritatively. Have you ever heard, had someone like, lord it over something like they get a supervisor job or they uh they get like they're like the parking ticket attendant at a campus at a university and they have like god complex right like a little power goes a long way well there's a sense in which the letters of scripture are delivered in a way that you might say like wow if this isn't the word of god this guy has a god complex right so we need to figure it out is this a god complex or is it the word of god because the letters that were written sound like this. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writing as a pastor to the church. I guarantee that I will probably never speak like this. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. One of the reasons we see that the New Testament is authoritative in the word of God is because it's delivered that way. It seems like Paul had this idea. He knew the Spirit of God was speaking through him. He knew that the teaching of the apostles was going to be the foundation of the church. He was receiving revelation from God. He was disclosing it to the church. And so he warned them. He told them, you should receive this. Tell the people in the church to receive this as they would the word of God. That's not the only time. Colossians, he writes the letter. He commands them. He says, I command you to make sure that this letter is read in all the churches, read publicly in all the churches. Now, he either had an amazingly high opinion of his own, of his, of his self, of his self, of him and be, him, him that be. He either had a, just a, a God complex, or he understood that what he was writing to be was, was to be received as scripture. Last place, not just them being delivered authoritatively, not just continuing the Old Testament story, but Peter, the apostle Peter, actually treats Paul's writings as scripture. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. So they take Paul's writings and they do the same thing they do with Paul's writings, what they do with not the scripture. He doesn't say they do to Paul's works, his letters, his epistles, his opinions. He does not say they take Paul's opinions and twist them kind of like they would the scripture. No, he says they are twisting Paul's writings and his letters the same way they do with all scripture. Peter quotes it and gives it an authority that is exactly the way that he would have talked about the Old Testament about the, by the Word of God. It's one of the reasons that we believe the New Testament is authoritative. We've asked a bunch of questions today. We've said God speaks. How does he speak? What does he speak? And now I want to talk just for a second a little bit about the way that we got Scripture. So this is sort of like how was Scripture written And I think this is important because a lot of people wonder, how in the world could someone like Paul, who seems so 
emotional and passionate at times. Be writing the same word of God as Luke, who's like really careful and accurate and thoughtful and precise. The same as the psalmist who has this soaring emo language with, with a harp, right? How does this work? And some people really believe that if God wrote scripture, this phrase in, in 2 Timothy, if it was breathed out by God, then it must have been some sort of mechanical process. Has anyone ever seen a mechanical Turk? You know what that is? Ever heard of a mechanical Turk? Mechanical Turk is a couple hundred years old. It was these people who devised this little box that would sit at fairs. And it, was, it looked like a man. It was like this man puppet robot thing. You could put a nickel in and it would interact with you. You could actually like give it a name. And on the piece of paper in front of you, this machine would take a pen. There was like a little, little dip thing here of ink. It would like dip in the ink and it would actually write out the thing. It would interact with you. And it was this hit at these fairs like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this. You could tell it to draw something and it would like crudely draw this flower or a bird for you. It's called a mechanical Turk. People thought like, are robotics upon us? What is going on? Well, what's really going on is a man is sitting in the back of the box behind the puppet and he's figured out intricate controls and so that he can control the arms of the thing and he's seeing through a part of the puppet and he's hearing what the people are saying and they're saying, draw the name Sebastian Kira Knightley or something like that, right? And and then he just writes it. He just writes it out. A lot of people think if it's going to be the word of God, the way the Bible must have come about is that Paul was like going to buy some food at the market. He was just hanging out. And then all of a sudden his mates, <laughs> I get mates, like his friends said mates. A lot of Australians back then. His friends, his pals were like, oh no, it's happening again. Robot Paul is here. And he's just going to get some food. And then he's like, must speak word of God. Right, like, I'm a mechanical Turk. And he just goes in until he sits down and just gets everything out. Then somehow it's not over. This is not the picture that God gives us. When God works, it can be truly God working. He does so through natural means. He works through natural means all the time. It's the one of the, it actually delights God to do supernatural things through natural means. He does this all the time. I had to explain to my kids this week a little bit about how babies were made. Yes, I did. I had to have this, some of these conversations. Like, what in the world, right? Did I lie to them when I said God makes babies? No. But I know some people are involved, right? <laughs> God does supernatural things through natural means. No one can sit around and just pray because God alone makes life. Yes, God alone makes life, but he does throw organically through natural means. He's placed means. This is how scripture came about. Peter says the same thing later. He says that the men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy says that God breathed out. So Paul, in all of his fiery, zealous, amazing, amazing wit and just sharpness of mind sat and God used him to speak truthful words of life. This is how the Bible, the Bible, the Bible came to us. People who put words to these kind of things call it organic inspiration. Organic inspiration. Everybody knows that. Go to Whole Foods if you can't figure it out. It's natural, right? It's not being zapped and turning into a mechanical robot. 
It is fine for us to affirm that 66 books of this Bible are the very true and real word of God, no less authoritative than if God showed up himself and spoke, without us needing to resort to, we found it in the jungle on some tablets, and there was a printing press that looked like it came from heaven, and we don't know what happened. We don't need to make up craziness like that. God does supernatural, wonderful things through natural means, and that's how scripture came to us through the context and the events and the teaching of real humans in real time. That is the story of the Bible. I want to note the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's amazing to me how comprehensive Paul says Scripture is. Because it's breathed out by God, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In verse 15, He says, the Bible was enough for you, Timothy, when you were a child. When you were a child, the Bible is what saved you. It showed you Jesus, and you came to know him from Scripture. Your past was dealt with by the Bible. Now, in verse 16, he says, your present is dealt with and understood by the Bible. Scripture is what reproves you and teaches you and corrects you and trains you. Your holiness is going to come about by the means of God speaking in the here and now through his word. Your childhood, God revealed himself to you in the scripture. Remember that, Timothy? He says, pay attention and continue in the Bible now, Timothy, because God's still speaking to you. He's reproving you and correcting you and training you in righteousness, even here and now. And then in verse 17, what does he say? The man of good God may be equipped and competent for every good work. Your future, everything God has designed you to be and do, Every place you'll end up, every suffering you'll endure, every persecution, how will you endure it? God's promises in the word of God. The Bible was enough, Timothy, when you were a child. You ought to continue in it now because it's enough. And for every good work, every one, for the rest of your existence, God has spoken in a very real way in Scripture. That's the testimony of this book about itself. It's why... We preach the Bible. At the end of the day, I can preach the sermon and we can say, oh, that's fine, but why, why do we believe what we believe and what does it matter to us? It matters that we want to consistently come under the word of God and learn it together. And when I say preach, I mean not just describe it in information detail. Preaching is this unbelievable mix of exalting in truth and delivering truth at the same time. This is not just a truth delivery system. We don't come here to exchange information only. I want you to learn, but I want you more to exalt in the truth that you see in Jesus. To revel in it. To walk away and say, this is worth living for. That's what preaching does. Paul makes the same application. You know that. Paul makes the same application. The beginning of chapter 4, right after the section in 2 Timothy 3 that we're reading, This is what he says following his instruction. Some of his last words to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, what does he say? Verse 2, preach the word. He wants to see the kingdom expanded. No one more than Paul wanted to see the lost saved. No one more than Paul wanted to see the church succeed. And what does he say? Buy a fog machine. Go get that guy, Christopher Tomlin. He's amazing. He can write worship songs. That was a bad attempt. That was a bad attempt at a joke. You guys, anyway, 
Don't, he doesn't say go and like, don't do a marketing campaign. Here's what you should do. Do a marketing campaign. He doesn't say go and make the most emotional storytelling speeches you possibly can and trick people in because we need to get people in the church. Paul wanted the kingdom to advance more than anyone. And what does he say to Timothy at the end of the day? Preach the word. As a church, it's what we're committed to because we believe that in these pages, we meet God. He really wants to be known. He's calling to you to know him. And that every single day that we go off and about our business and we leave the revealed word of God sitting on the table side, that we're neglecting an unbelievable gift that God has given. He longs to be known. He's calling you to know him. Ultimately, ultimately we know God because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that in many ways he spoke in the past, but in these days he spoke to us by his son. We don't want to just preach the Bible as information. We preach Jesus unapologetically. He is the exact imprint and nature of God. Jesus said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. I and, I and the Father am one. We preach Jesus because the Bible is about him and only in him do we have salvation. That's why the statement of faith matters. Let me pray for us.